0: Welcome to the Delling Pod with me, James Delling Pod. And we have a very exciting guest for you this week. Imported all the way from Australia. Well, sort of. Um, Her name is Helen Dale. And she is half Australian and half English, I think.
1: Half Australian half British. Half British. Okay, yeah, yeah.
0: And um, you are the author... Of, are there three in the series or just two at the moment?
1: No, just two. And there are will only ever be two. Okay. Yes.
0: Um, so that's a... Not a trilogy. Uh, it's
1: a I'm not actually sure. Diptych. Diptych. <laughs>
0: Diptych. Something like that. Yeah. Um, books called... Two books called Kingdom of the Wicked. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Um, I've, I've read the first one. I'm looking forward very much to reading the second. Uh, they're, they're, they're great books. They're kind of... all alternate reality books aren't they yes
1: speculative fiction or alternative history yeah
0: yeah we like that we like that kind of shit um but before we go there i want to know a bit more about about you and where you came from and stuff because i met you at the battle of ideas
1: yes that's correct
0: well i love the battle of ideas the thing that that um, Claire, claire fox runs holds at the barbican every year and even though lovely claire fox kids herself that she's a kind of Marxist. I mean, she's totally on board with everything I believe in and probably everything you believe in.
1: If you want to know what to the you, noises are, everyone, it's I'm being molested yeah, by a dog. It's that, <laughs> the, Yeah, dog, what are you doing? That dog, by the way,
0: the reason that my microphone has not got a microphone cover on it is because the other day the dog ate it, just savaged it. Because oh,
1: you decided that the, micro, that the microphone foam... Uh, belonged in your tummy, mm, did it, Doggo? Mm,
0: mm. Now, what happened was that I'd been away all day, and, and the dog had been chained up, and, and the person who was meant to come and give give her a walk hadn't, and so the dog punished me because the dogs do this. They, they if, if if they if you've upset them, they take revenge, and then they're then they're, it's not sort of conscious; it's just instinctive. They just so they rip up your microphone cover as 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 <laughs> or whatever, you, or, or <laughs> underpants, whatever. socks. Or, yeah, exactly. So you're from Queensland. Yes. Which is, I love Queensland. I mean, it's it's got crocodiles, killer snakes, butterflies, um, the Barrier Reef. It's got f- fewer, possibly, ghastly left liberals than than the other other states. Probably
1: yes. Even the Labor Party doesn't have left left liberals in Queensland. <laughs>
0: That's good. And you've got places in the outback like like Chiligo, which I which is the outback town that I went to in Australia. I'm just really stunned it.
1: to find someone who's been to Chiligo Caves mm. because was th- this was a place of my childhood and I actually haven't visited there since my childhood but it is something I associate with ah, my childhood. Okay.
0: Well, yeah, I'd say recommend any any special friends visiting Australia do go to Chiligo It's an amazing place. Um and so you grew up, you were telling me in the car on the way over, under. He's more or less a kind of. The closest Australia's ever had to a fascist dictator, isn't it? Joe Bjelke Peterson? Yeah,
1: Joe Bjelke Peterson. Uh, he he was actually uh, born in New Zealand of Danish background. And this became a long running joke in Australia and in Queensland. Uh, but he's, he was a peanut farmer from an area uh, around town called Kingaroy and country area but fairly dry not the sort of association that a lot of people have with Queensland which is sugar cane lots of rain pineapples bananas yeah so uh, the the cattle and cane from the go-betweens which was certainly a great song of my childhood and was what I was associated with because I spent all my time nearly all of it anyway in coastal districts where it was warm and wet and they grew sugar and that kind of thing um and I wouldn't call Joe B. peterson a fascist dictator. We've never had that in Australia in any state. But he was very conservative and not in a good way. And the expression that I tend to use to try to get across to British people what he was like as leader, which was for the whole of my childhood, basically, um, that I can remember, was that he was the closest that the white British Commonwealth has come to true authoritarian government in that he did things that you associate with, say, Louisiana in the United States, where the the, uh, borders of electoral constituencies were gerrymandered. They used to call it the Bjorkimander. The police were terribly corrupt. And I I mean, I actually saw things that really shock people who come from developed first world countries because I saw people bribing police when I was a child in order to get the police to say for example release a valued aboriginal farm worker from jail uh, who'd been locked up overnight for drunken disorderly or something like that so it was a very conservative largely rural and noticeably corrupt place to grow up it's in a
0: way it sounds to me like the the left the left loves to caricature conservatism as this this Authoritarian, selfish, corrupt thing. And perhaps Joe Bjorki Peterson was as close as you can get to the kind of left's fantasy version of.
1: Yes, I mean, they used to call Queensland the Deep North in the same way that people in America refer to the Deep South. And, but there are lots of different varieties of conservatism. And Bjorke peterson was a very, very particular kind of conservatism. There were plenty of conservative governments in other Australian states and in other countries all around the world that might have been genuinely socially conservative, might have been genuinely economically conservative, but they were nothing like right. the Bjorke peterson government. And the really standout thing with, with Joe Bjorki-Peterson was the corruption.
0: Did, did this not put you off being a conservative or uh, were you I don't know were you a lefty when you when you were a child or
1: Not really no no my family was always sort of broadly speaking conservative as most country Australians are um, yeah, but they 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 have distinctive conservative traditions that are tied to what what used to be called the country party and is now the national party but there was also an aspect to conservatism in Queensland where The country party, which then became the national party, wasn't just a political party. It was a social environment. Like there were very strong links, for example, between the local country party and your bachelor and spinster's balls. Yeah. Which I don't know whether you have them over here, but sort of big country dances, basically. And for years, simply because of where I grew up and my what sort of background I came from with my family? I got invitations to bachelors and spinster's balls.
0: Yeah, it's. <laughs> have you seen that, that that movie Get Out?
1: No, no, I you, you know
0: the one I mean. It's it was it was a, it was a really good really good thing about a, a, a black guy who goes out with this white girl who's who who comes from that kind of environment that you've described, where where the, the sort of the country club set and and, and they. They dictate everything. They yes. dictate the mores well, and stuff.
1: The, the running situation was, and I, I remember my father saying this. Well, you have to be a member of the national party or the country party, as it was when I was little, uh, because otherwise it starts getting difficult to sell your crop. You know. So yeah. it was. It was this. It was more than a political party. It was kind of a social environment that. that Sucked country Queenslanders in and made it very difficult for them to leave, even if they weren't really interested in politics.
0: Although let's let's not pretend that the um, the the alternative isn't far far worse. I mean the left are just way worse, aren't they? Just generally. Well, they've just
1: gone feral recently. I I grew up, well not grew up, but by this stage I was in my in in my early twenties, late teens, when Australia had a series of extremely competent Labor governments. Uh, particularly when Bob Hawke and Paul Keating were in charge. And I just don't recall anybody. I mean, I'm sure they existed. I'm sure that we had mad Marxists and mad socialists and the kind of people who, who went into the extremes of Labour over here. I'm sure we had them too, but I just don't associate them with the Australian Labour Party that I remember in my 20s. Yeah. I really do think this, this modern feral left that you see is a relatively recent development. And I've, I've spent a lot of time talking with friends, including a very close friend in Australia who I would describe as labour right. And uh, she's a professor at uh, an Australian university. And she's saying this, says the same sort of thing. She says, I just don't remember this. I don't remember people like this in the ALP. Where did yeah. they come from? Yeah,
0: yeah. I th- As Exhibit A, I would present Rod Little, who's maybe the best columnist in 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 Britain. Do you read Rod's stuff? Yes, Star? I do. I do, Yes, and Rod, Rod, I, think, I really the spec definitely. Rod captures, I think, that that bemused attitude. Rod would consider himself an old school lefty. You know, he's a not not a socialist, but but old old Labour. Yes, and. I think he's been used as bemused as as we conservatives over what's happened to the left. It, it has gone, yeah, feral. I feral. think is a very I, I mean, good no. That's
1: the expression I use is feral. And I, I, I have many, many very close friends um, who uh, I have an enormous amount of respect for because they put so much into defending the civil liberties of Queenslanders when we had the Bjorkie Peterson government, and they were from the Australian Labor Party, and. A lot of them are just sitting there going, um, not me. But they're still, they're still Labour. They're they're still members of the Labour Party and, and, and they're quite shocked by it. Yeah. Well,
0: do you not think that people like that have a duty to, a moral duty to quit, quit the, this, this, this idea of voting for a, and and this, this, by the way, is a problem facing conservatives at the moment. If if the Conservative Party ceases to represent conservative values, then you shouldn't keep on voting for it. And in the same way, I am shocked that these people in the north of England, particularly, for example, who who will always vote for who would vote for a monkey if it was wearing wearing a red rosette.
1: Yes, they vote but, for the rosette, not the but, person. But, but hang on,
0: their their party in the north is being taken over by MPs who sell them out to Islam or MPs who, who, who are denying them Brexit. And you're thinking, well, well how, how much bad stuff does the Labour Party have to do before you start taking away your vote and voting for what you believe rather than what the party represents?
1: Well, yeah, this is, I mean, this is sort of... Brexit has produced this extraordinary social division in the United Kingdom where you've got this situation where an issue divides both the major parties roughly 60 40 it seems between 60 and 70 percent of conservatives are pro-leave but there's a very significant rump of conservative remainers on the other hand you've got in labor roughly 60 to 70 percent are pro-remain but there's a very significant 30 to 40 percent that are pro-leave so you've got this huge division down both the parties and so the party system is ceasing to work and I, I tend to take very seriously the arguments made by Dr. Stephen Davies at the um, Institute for Economic Affairs, and I, I've quoted him extensively in my coverage of Brexit for The Australian, which is the, Australia's main national daily. And he talks about this realignment in politics where the governing issues that matter most to people are just changing, and they're changing as we watch.
0: Yeah absolutely right i have never felt um i've never witnessed a clearer divide within within britain a clearer and more logical divide in in, in between the goodies and the baddies as i have over brexit suddenly i found myself allied with this you know, occasionally i'll get people saying uh um you're, how can you rail against the establishment elite when you went to Oxford and 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 you and you and you talk posh, um, and I say those distinctions don't count anymore. The establishment I'm talking about now is not the Brigade of Guards and the the old Church of England and people in bowler hats and stuff. The, the, they're gone. They're gone. They went ages ago. They were probably only ever a straw man in the imagination of, of, of Owen Jones and his his forebears. But Brexit has really... I, I, do you know what it reminds me of? I I went to... I wrote my first novel. I, I, I decided that I'd have to go and live in the south of France to write my first novel. Oh, right. <laughs> so well, so I, I, went, I went and lived in this, in this village in Montpellier called Saint-Jean-de-Fosse. And I, I watched the communities. And there were two, two bull terrains in the village. And one boule terrain was used by the people who had been more or less collaborators in the war. <laughs> And the other this one so was fringe. used was used by the people who'd who claimed to have fought for the resistance. And everyone everyone knew who was who was who. And, and, and neither of the parties really mixed. And I'm seeing that divide now. I've lost I've lost friends over Brexit. But more than that, I've watched my gen an element within my generation just flip flip completely. Just just lose it. People actually losing their marbles. I'm not going to name my name no, my no. ex-friends because that would get me even deep in trouble. but I, I, I see them yeah I see them not just not just losing it over Brexit. I also see them see them embracing causes, the kind of SjW causes oddly enough, in order to distance themselves still further from what they perceive as the racism and little England mentality of, of us brexiteers.
1: I have tried. I have seen this as well. Um, and I, I've written a bit about this in in Kiet uh, and for the Australian also. Is that how you pronounce it? Quillette? Yeah, well, it's a French word. So, yeah. um, And Not Quillette. But, uh, but huge numbers of people, including people who work for it, say Quillette. But it is a French word. By the way, so can you, I just say,
0: I love Quillette, quiet so much. It's I think a it's, very what, good. it's one of the best. It restores my faith. <laughs> in the fourth estate, that there's still room in the world for that kind of message. Claire Lehman
1: is, I, I have known her for many years because she's Australian. Yeah. Um, she's di- When I used to live in Sydney, she's dined in my house and uh, you know, she knows, I knew her very well. She knew the politician I used to work for, you know, the senator in Australia. And I would describe her as probably the most gifted commissioning editor I've ever worked with, and I've worked with a lot of good commissioning editors who have real talent, who are very good at finding good writers, and who are very good at bringing the best out of you. I mean, there are some. I mean, I, I because I'm a freelancer, I've written for lots of different outlets. From the Spectator, I've started. I I, I start. I've this month I start a column for Standpoint, also the Australian, in, uh, and uh, and uh, for Quadrant. And, but also even going in the op- opposite direction politically, I've written for The Guardian and so on and so forth. And the I was actually working in, in the parliament at the time. I was working for the politicians, for Senator David Lionhelm. And when Kiet first emerged as a sort of force, and there was just one extraordinary article that that Claire actually wrote herself about something known as stereotype accuracy. And I'm not going to go into that. I just recommend you just... People listening to the, to, to, to the Delling pod just Google quiet layman stereotype accuracy and, um, and, uh, and just, just Google it and just have a read of what she wrote. Because I was, I was, in the, I was actually in Canberra. It was during a, a sitting fortnight. And this article about the way we all stereotype our opponents, yeah. but also stereotype ourselves as well, which is really quite extraordinary, just went all around the Red Wing of the Australian Parliament, staffers, it did not matter what their political persuasions were, were just going, this is it. This is exactly right. And not only did she have the ability to explain complicated, in this case it's from from psychiatry, uh, psychiatric ideas, but just to find other people who could do exactly the same thing. You know, it's like she's been hiding them all in her back pocket. And the thing is with me, I mean, she got me to write for for, for Kiet and okay that's fine but I'd already been writing for The Spectator and The yeah. Australian and that kind of thing so I was kind of a known quantity and before that I I'd had a novel, I'd had novels published and so on and so forth but some of the other people she found, I mean she found one bloke who was an undergraduate student and who was like 19 at the University of Queensland studying anthropology
0: She found him and
1: she just found him, this chap called Matthew Blackwell and he's just extraordinary Coleman Hughes, he's American so I, I don't, like Coleman Hughes, he's black I, yeah, I, d- I don't know as much about him because obviously she recruited him from the United States. I tend to know the Australian people she's found and the British people she's found better. Uh, but it's just this extraordinary talent for finding writers that no one knew existed who are just really good. No, it's
0: really good. And, and she's hot, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I you're, hear.
1: you're allowed to ask me that. <laughs> well, you yeah, I mean, you're local homosexual. Yeah, yeah. As, as, a, as a lesbian, hot, yes. you,
0: can, you can give me the. the le- yeah, I can. I think, you- can I? Can I congratulate you? By the way, I think I think you are the first leser we've we've had on the show. Oh
1: really? I think
0: I think we've but but unfortunately I've already gone better than that. I've already had a transsexual person on. Oh, the, who did you have? Um, Susanna Moroz. and you, the weird thing was this is this is just just a, a side story. Um, I wanted I wanted to talk to Zana about the experience of being a transsexual. Obviously, I mean, duh, it's, it's what you'd want to talk to talk to her about, um, and how she funded her operation and why she did it and what it's like. And and you should conser- we're, we're talking about conservative um, transsexual, so what's it like being a conservative transsexual in a world where that whole issue has been stolen by the ident- I, the identity politics left to advance their you know their cultural Marxist agenda i couldn't talk about any of this shit because at the beginning of the of our interview she says i can't i can't i can't reveal that i'm transsexual because i've already got to deal with somebody else that i'm going to talk exclusive <laughs> I thought sub this for Game Soldier, so we so we so we had this quite interesting conversation about Paul. I I I haven't spoken to her recently. I don't know what's what's happened. Um, anyway, so being a lesbian is not is not quite as you're not as quite a rara Arvis as as, um. <laughs>
1: as it or for, to be a conservative. Uh, con- uh, uh,
0: but congrats, con- by the way. I mean, look, I think would you not say it's probably fair that most lesbians swing left rather than right?
1: It depends. Some can be. There is this. There is a stereotype that both lesbians and gay men are all on the left, and it's no. In, it's I've got inf- so
0: many, so many right wing gay friends, uh, it's male, inf- males it, just- It's
1: infuriating. It really, really annoys a, a lot of us. And I mean, and the one who is my favourite writer about this issue, about being a really, really kind of very, very Tory gay man, but who is also extremely good at explaining gay issues, yeah. is Graham Archer, who yeah. writes for Unheard. I think he's terrific. Um, I just think he's a terrific writer and he also has the best beard in British journalism. <laughs> he's just got this wonderful beard. But he, do, he
0: does write beautifully, although I have to say I find him a little squishy. Uh, he's not as hardcore as... Uh, I, uh, I, I think of all my gay friends, you know, Douglas Murray, for example. They are they make me look like, a, like like Tony Ben. I mean, they make me look like a bloody pinko. That, that's, that's how, whereas Graham, I think is, he writes exquisitely, but I think he's, he's in the center. He, he's, he's the kind of person who would call himself center-right. Yes. And I would never call myself center-right because I don't buy into that, that definition. I think that's a, it's a fake definition used actually more for the purposes of, of virtue signaling to the left that you're not, you know, I'm right-wing, but I'm not that right-wing. And I think, yes. fuck that. Anyway, that's that's but, another.
1: But yes, um, and it was to do with with you had situations. Now you're being molested by a dog. No.
0: Stupid dog. <laughs> uh,
1: it was to do with negative interactions with the police, with religion, yeah. that drove um, a, a lot of um, lesbians to the left. Right. The political left. That's that certainly is a is a real phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, But the stereotype of bonkers lesbians who are all radical feminists, that's just not true. Is it not? Um, There is, I mean, there's quite a lot of empirical evidence now that lesbians tend to be statistically very high earners. So you've got a lot of very middle class and upper middle class lesbians uh, who do very well economically. They're up in your high earning Earnings bracket when you do when you do calculations of the gender pay gap that are not silly yeah. that actually take things like childbirth and choice of major and hours worked into account you tend to find I, I remember reading relatively recently there was a one study and I think it might have even been an Australian that uh, an Australian study that uh, childless lesbians are 117 percent ceteris paribus of your male earnings. So when you've got a lot of people like that i mean i I'll, I'll quote a line from my old boss from Senator Lionhelm. Uh, he says, "Well, after a while, you get sick of seeing your paycheck with so much taken out of it, and that simple effect of having your pockets picked can drive people to the political right.
0: It's funny you say that i, I I've, I've been meaning some say I want to do a, do a, a a podcast with my eldest boy um." the rat as he's known who left england for hong kong and okay i mean being being my boy he's he was already he had a sound upbringing let's say <laughs> but going to hong kong just absolutely when he compared and contrasted his experience there where you get low low taxation you know 10% tax maximum with his experience in the uk where he was he recognized even as a young man that he was supporting lots of bludgers as you call them with his, in
1: australia yes yeah,
0: yeah um you're absolutely right that, that nothing nothing like a kind of a depleted pay packet turns turns a man or a woman or whatever <laughs> to 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 um
1: conservatism to being conservative yes yeah yeah. And, and I know a lot of... I have a lot of lesbian friends who've gone through that process. Right. Who might have... And they probably still are very socially progressive, but they're just sick of... I've seen people just sitting in front of me, holding their pay slip, going, this is getting really old. This is getting really, really old, and I'm through, through with it. i
0: tell you what's sad, though. Back in the day, I could probably have said, look, some of my best friends are gay... I could have pointed to my friendship with Helen Dale and this would, have, this would have shown to the enemy that I was actually really okay. Nowadays, it's not enough. The, 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 the left has has readjusted itself. So that it's gone so insane that you've really got to be embrace all identity politics nonsense.
1: I actually think that's a terrible loss to not be able to say I have gay friends or black friends or Jewish friends yeah. or whatever the minority is under discussion, because the way human beings come to see other human beings as human beings and not as a stereotype is by treating with them as individuals I, and as friends. Totally, I totally agree. And if if you can't do that, then it is actually so much easier to be t- to be turned towards being prejudiced. I mean, prejudice comes from not treating individuals as individuals but only seeing them as members of the of the of the relevant group and it is the most awful thing ever and it and the, you were mentioning in the car when we came over from the station that there are certain things that drive you to despair well that is one of mine i mean i really do buy the idea of the consolations of friendship and being able to put politics aside and to be able to treat with people regardless of their backgrounds and what they believe and so on and so forth and it Breaks my heart when I see friendships bust up over politics or over something like Brexit. I just I just look at that and I think no, that's really sad. Also, I
0: as soon as I as soon as I I, I knew you were a lesbian, I was quite interested in finding out more about it and th- about your experiences. In the same way with with black people, I I don't want to just pretend that they're they're not. You know, in the early stages of the friendship, I don't just want to pretend that, that, that they're the same colour as me and they've had the same experience. I, I want to find out about what it is that makes them tick in their experiences. Nowadays, these kind of questions and discussions are called microaggressions. Yes. But it it's seems ridiculous. to me that in order to, to, to form a bond with somebody, you've got to talk about the things that make them them and make you you and find the points of, uh, that you have in common, but
1: also the, the, understand the points of difference. Well, it becomes difficult. The one that's something that stands out to me, because it's a very Queensland experience, is part of the corruption of the Queensland police was a tendency, particularly in rural areas, towards racism. Yeah, yeah. And often the only way to sort of get a handle on what that was like, apart from some of the things that, you know, like bribing the police to get an Aboriginal employee out of the lockup uh, – often that involves hearing an Aboriginal person talk about driving while black. Now, obviously, that's not a thing anymore. That's gone. But it was a real thing, you know, particularly if the Aboriginal person was middle class and had a good job. They were a farm manager or something. You know, plenty of these in North, in North Queensland when I was a kid. Um, and they had a nice car. I mean, I I have – he's dead now. But at the time, I had an Ab- Aboriginal friend who – Among other, he worked sometimes for my father and some other people um, in in the local area. He was a farm manager. He was very good. Um, He had a BMW. And every single time he drove it from Cairns to Townsville, he would be booked.
0: Oh, my goodness. Every single time.
1: And until you heard that story from his mouth, it was unless you have a good and sympathetic imagination, it's actually quite understand, difficult to understand what it means when someone says, oh yes, I got booked for driving while black and you, everyone has a giggle and moves on. They don't realise it's a real thing of, oh no, how dare that Aborigine be driving a nice car between Cairns yeah, yeah. and Townsville? Mm. You know, <laughs> this kind of thing.
0: We should talk about your books because th- th- their genesis is quite interesting in that you were... You were studying at Oxford? Yes. You got yes. A, 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 some, some kind of scholarship?
1: Yes, I was on a scholarship at the University of Oxford and I completed a law degree at Oxford known as the BCL. Bachelor of Civil Law, which isn't really a bachelor's degree, it's a master's degree, but it's taught in exactly the same way as undergraduate law degrees at Oxford, in that you have the tutorial system and you live in your college. So you live
0: like an undergraduate. Yes, so
1: it's like an undergraduate, but it's taught at a higher level. So none of my tutors, for example, when I did the, the BCL, were other graduate students. My tutors were people like... John Finnis, Professor John Finnis, or Professor John Gardner, or Professor Roger Scruton. Yeah, these were people. You were taught by Roger Scruton. I was indeed. Oh my goodness! That's why I was tweeting your your podcast with him everywhere because I was trying to get across to people this man has this extraordinary voice. He's another Geoffrey Cox. He's got this rich rum-soaked fruitcake of a voice, and people would just sit there and listen to Roger Scruton, and he could have been he could have recited a bloody bull bearings manifest and you'd sit there and listen to him because yeah. he's got this glorious speaking voice
0: yeah he's he's he is um he is our god i i, <laughs> I in fact almost the, of all the the fine moments in my podcast to date i think the best I don't, I don't think he i'm not sure whether he said this on on tape or not but at the end he sort of he sort of intimated that 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 this had been a good and worthwhile discussion and sort of intimated that I was intellectually acceptable, and I thought, "Oh my God, that's like surviving a tutorial
1: <laughs> with Roger Scruton." With, with, with Roger, Scruton. yeah, you've you you've you've got off, and and yeah, so. Y- so that's the difference with the, the BCL, and uh, it, so it's taught by the sort of leading figures in in the field rather than by other graduate students, because it is at a, despite the name, it's a the master's so the, level.
0: This was this was when.
1: Um, I went up in two thousand and seven
0: okay tell me what had oxford gone to shit by that stage or was it still all right
1: it was absolutely fine God this I. is what this is what i'm talking about this bonkers leftism is quite new i really do think it's a recent phenomenon i've talked to a lot of a lot of my friends in australia and uk people who studied with me at oxford who when i did uh, the the roman law subjects i needed in order to be able to practice in scotland uh, up at edinburgh you know we we've all talked about this and going this is new this is weird interesting yeah this is something that is really quite new but anyway the the genesis of kingdom of the wicked was i i did well in the the bcl for, for which i had a a, a scholarship because it's quite short and i decided to stay and do a defil and i got some funding uh, for that the problem, of course, was that I then got completely distracted and I think I produced about two chapters of my DPhil and my supervisor quite liked them. He thought, oh, no, these are, these, these are good, you're going well. And I got a very nice supervisor's report. And then I just didn't write another word. <laughs> I wrote two novels instead and I had to turn up to my scholarship provider uh, at the end of it and go, I'm terribly sorry, but I haven't written a DPhil. I've written two novels and I was fully expecting to have to pay about £20,000 back to them. And they they were just good about it. They said, oh, no, you came up with an established reputation as a writer. You'd already published a novel. You'd written a lot for different outlets in, in, in different places. We understand that this kind of thing can happen. And I was just sitting there going thank you very much, because otherwise that would have involved me doing weird things to my mortgage. <laughs>
0: that's, that's But that's a really happy story, because that makes me think that sometimes the world does work. Because yes. it's obviously... And in a way, your books do justify the scholarship and your grant, whatever, because actually they are about the workings of the law, really, yes. aren't they? The workings of Roman law.
1: And lots of the reading that I was doing for what was going to be a film in aspects of, of jurisprudence. That was my area of interest. Jurisprudence, governance, rule of law. Those are the areas that I'm, I was always interested in as a scholar. Uh, they all fed into a novel. And the thing is, if I had have written a fill I'd have got a few academic papers out of it. I'd have gone further Which down... Which no one would have read. I'd have gone further down the path to academia rather than practice, back into practice. and But the thesis itself, the actual... Doctoral thesis, the defile, would have been read by to use the Australian expression two men and a dog, yeah. i.e. my 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 supervisor, th- my examiners, and maybe a few other scholars. Whereas uh, the the, the I, I don't have the figures for book two of Kingdom of the Wicked for order, but book one of Kingdom of the Wicked has, uh, as of just before Christmas, had already sold about ten thousand copies. That's a lot Which more is that's a lot more people to read your ideas. I agree.
0: So tell, while I've got you, tell me what, what the fundamental difference is between Roman law and English common law.
1: Everything to the Romans is reducible to contract. Nothing is taken outside the logic of the law of contract. And even their religion. If there is a god, that, or if there was a god, or gods because they were pagans, that the Romans got down on their knees in before, and I actually give this line to one of my characters in, I think it's in book two rather than book one, and worshipped, it is the law of contract. So things that the English common law never reduced to contract and are now struggling with, uh, the way divorce works in England, uh, the way the sale of property works in England and you can have problems with the chain and you get gazumping and gazundering and so on and so forth. The Scottish system, which is based on Roman law and a blind auction, is completely different and much, much more efficient. But it's also got a degree of ruthlessness to it that you don't associate with... Um, A lot of European countries, because, for example, the European countries, a lot of them call on the code Napoleonic code. Roman law was actually quite like the common law in that it was uncodified and it developed progressively over time and so on and so forth. If you want to see large areas of law that look really quite close to what the pagan Romans had, then you need to look at something like Scottish property law or Scottish family law. Um, you wouldn't look, although there are some areas where it is quite close to the, the pagan system, you wouldn't necessarily look at the law in France and Spain because it is, whilst it's Roman, it's also Napoleonic. And if I have a little argument with my fellow Brexiteers over, over the law is that some people, like the likes of Daniel Hannan, they only see the Napoleonic form of Roman law. They don't see that the roman law that for example fed into the ideas of adam smith which is the roman law that was used in scotland and how that too was could also be a great engine for liberty right so there is and and there is quite a widespread view uh, amongst a lot of Brexiteers, and I tend to have to sit there and be the the, the person who explains Roman law, one oh one, and go no 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 no. You think you're th- you're making the mistake of thinking that all Roman law is what they have in France. And yes it, it yes France does indeed have Roman law, but it has codified Roman law with the Code Napoleon, and that's not the way the Romans did it. And you need to be aware that the the traditions that fed into that codification were not necessarily the same as the traditions that fed into the development. That's of interesting. You've, law.
0: you've sort of answered, well, Sammy answered my my next question, which is, we we spend a lot of time congratulating ourselves on on the the, the living system that is English common law, the case law, and it evolves yeah. over time, and it, so in that way, it satisfies the needs of a changing. Culture, so it's it's sort of by law by common consent, isn't it? Yes, and we think that's good, and and a lot of countries in the world seem to like it too because they're happy to do business here and they look up to our legal system. But are you saying that actually Romans are better?
1: No, no. Um, I've always been because I'm trained in both and I've practiced in both systems. uh, It's very much horses for courses. Uh, There are certain things that the English common law does that are just extraordinary and the one that I would like to nominate as the greatest achievement of the English common law is the limited liability corporation which was a creation of the English equity draftsman marvellous thing because it allows it democratizes capitalism because it allows ordinary people who don't have very much money to bear relatively small amounts of risk in order to enter into markets in the form of buying shares. All of the legal structures that existed before then, both Roman and English, exposed people to enormous amounts of risk in order for them to participate in capitalism. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean those structures are bad. The Roman mutual is a very good system. The John Lewis partnership is a a good example of that. It produces attractive relationships between the individuals who form that partnership. That's one of the the characteristics of a mutual structure. But partnerships as originally conceived of, if you were a partner, you put yourself at enormous risk, an equity partner did. you I'm sure you've all every one of us who's had friends who who go into a law firm that isn't an LLP is still a traditional partnership on the partnership model they have to put money in and that can and if the if the firm goes under they lose it all
0: yes it's like, I mean, like Lloyd's names
1: it's like it's the same principle as Lloyd's Lloyd's names exactly yeah. Yeah, you know, so that is to me the great achievement of the of the English common law is the limited liability corporation. It what, made modern capitalism possible. And When
0: did that come in? Uh,
1: it well, it, the original joint stock companies go ultimately back to sort of the seventeenth and eighteenth century, but in its modern form, in Salomon's case, it's nineteenth century.
0: Right. Okay. Well, that's. I never. I never thought the conversation would 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 head in that particular direction, but that that's interesting. So. You wrote this th- these books, and you created this alternate reality in which industrial civilization had 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 come to Roman, the Roman Empire. So, when it when are your books actually set? I mean, if if, if you had a date,
1: well, this is where this is where they're slightly unusual in terms of uh, speculative fiction or um, alternative history, and this shows my my history uh, as a literary novelist rather than a writer of science right. fiction yes my uh, by what by way of background my first novel called the hand that signed the paper uh, was straight literary fiction um, and in the quite traditional sense and because of my education and background and upbringing and style of writing and so on and so forth I won a large number of literary awards for it in in australia including the, the miles franklin which is the australian equivalent of the booker prize so you literary fiction these are yeah prizes like that go to literary fiction yeah, yeah when i came to write kingdom of the wicked i knew i was changing genres and i've actually had a couple of reviews because being a miles franklin winner you get reviewed in all the papers yes, in australia such expectations yes I imagine, yeah. uh, and i have had a couple of reviews spank me for changing genres. You know, basically, you're going down market and doing science fiction. And that's what they do. They call it science fiction, which it isn't really. But in terms of setting, it is actually set in the first century AD during the reign of Tiberius with Pontius Pilate as governor of Judea. And I have created a society and industrialized Rome with all of those characters and all of those Roman values, but I have applied the reasoning and logic from one of the people who's... I read a lot of his stuff for my D film, from F.A. Hayek, the classical liberal legal scholar, economist and philosopher, about how legal systems evolve over time. So what I did was I first developed, based on my knowledge of Roman law, I tried to work out what industrialisation would do...
0: So as you were saying, before we were really interrupted by that phone call...
1: Yes. Um, the... The book was set, is set, in the first century AD. Yeah. Tiberius is the emperor of Rome. Yeah. Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea.
0: Yeah.
1: But all other things being equal, it is a Roman empire that has those people, but it has had an industrial revolution. Right. And I set out in an essay at the end of it, and I did this quite deliberately, how I came up with that, what my point of departure was, which is... Basically, um, Archimedes survives the siege of Syracuse and becomes Rome's DARPA guy, oh, basically. Oh, I see. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, But in order to get the law right, I actually used quite a lot of the scholarship that was supposed to go into the defil that never got right. written. Yeah. Okay. And I used the econ- the Nobel Prize-winning economist and lawyer, F.A. Hayek's research, on the way law evolves. Right. And the way things like, for example, limited liability Corporate, the Limited Liability Corporation, came originally from the Joint Stock Company. Uh, The way, for example, modern ideas about uh, democratic worker governance come from Roman ideas about mutuals and how you get interesting compromises along the way. So I wanted those real people and I wanted those real stories. And so I went back and reread all the Gospels and read a lot of the historical material, My first degree was in classics, so I read Latin very well, and I can crib my way through Greek, although I have forgotten a lot of it. So I wanted all those familiar names with all of those King James Version resonances, but I wanted a modern story that showed you what we would look like if we industrialized but with a different set of underlying values. Yes.
0: So the two things that came across to me that stood out in terms of the of the society that you depict were, one, the kind of the implacable logic of the legal system, the sort of the ruthlessness, the ro- Roman ruthlessness, that you can... Sp- we are talking about this in the car on the way here, weren't we? And I was saying, for example... I can't imagine the Romans agonizing too much over whether to bring home Shamima Begum or Begum or not. Or, or Begum or however you be, say it. <laughs> yeah, they, they'd be going, well, look, hello, she went off to um, to fight for an enemy's state. If she comes back, she, the our civilization will bear the cost of having to pay for the security, the, the security risks that she poses for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. And she's a threat to our citizens. I mean...
1: But, and also too, I mean, in terms of, because you're dealing with people that just, most of our modern ideas about compassion. And, it, and it's quite difficult to get this across to people because the history seems to be contraindicated uh, when you particularly when you're dealing with sexual minorities, but most of our modern ideas about compassion are Christian. And so that is why I have scenes in the book where you get otherwise quite civilised and urbane and humane Romans who um, appear to be quite modern in their values and in some respects very progressive because this was not a civilization that had particular issues about, say, being gay – uh but then just go well why would you want to look after that baby you don't want that in the gene pool it could be dangerous you know and i didn't put that stuff there gratuitously there is too much historical evidence for those attitudes the, the romans were fairly short on compassion uh they were good on friendship. They were good on loyalty. They were good on bravery. Uh, their their fundamental underlying cosmology was an order chaos one rather than a good evil one. So you've got a character in it, and the character Cornelius, who is the Roman equivalent of a principal crown prosecutor, who seems to be extremely honorable and decent and I've had women writing to me about Cornelius for two years now saying I think he's very shaggable you know that kind of thing it's been quite funny Um, (laughs) but he is also totally on board with torturing people and he just makes an application to court so that he can torture someone and he thinks that's entirely legitimate and fair because he is not about being good he is about being orderly so and that's you, the sort of underlying logic of it.
0: Do you think Christian compassion is actually a weakness in our civilization, and, and and kind of the woodworm which ultimately will destroy us?
1: Not necessarily, for the simple reason that every single people do things for reasons. Oh, this is a sort of a, me being a jurisprude here, jurisprudential. And the underlying inner logic of civilizations leads to certain manifestations of behaviour. And it was Nietzsche who basically just went through Roman criticisms of early Christianity jurists like Kelsus and so on and so forth, and summarised them all in Genealogy of Morals. And he was the one who used who had made comments along the lines of sometimes a society can be be so compassionate and so full of love it's actively self harming. Or words words to that. This is what
0: Nietzsche said. This
1: is what Nietzsche
0: was. This is what what I would call pathological altruism.
1: That, that that's probably as good a way as, as anything of putting it. And I must admit, that quotation from Nietzsche, which I don't have exactly right because I'm doing it off the top of my head, in the context of the Shamima Begum case, I saw Tom Holland tweet it. Now, Tom Holland is a very sincere Christian, and he has done some of the best scholarship that I have, popular scholarship that I have read, uh, on this difference in moral values between pagan Rome and modern secular post-Christian society and it is the thing that I really wanted to bring out in Kingdom of the Wicked is this is a fundamentally different set of moral values and the key defining difference is where the locus of compassion is Mm. and because You haven't read book two yet, but I mean, you will have noticed already with with book one, the lack of compassion produces this very orderly, pragmatic, reasoned society that produces a functioning legal system. And I I, I strongly recommend uh, get the Oxford University textbook on Roman law by Paul de Plessy, who was my tutor up in Edinburgh. So I had to do Roman law so I could practice in Scotland and he was my teacher. And if you read that, you see this commercial, orderly, brilliant, genius civilization for law but you also see this trait of terrible cruelty you know you can't Accuse the Romans of being terrible misogynists? You can't, you, they weren't. The status of women was high. Uh, you can't accuse them of being horrible homophobes. They weren't. You know, this is well, not something they, they
0: didn't even think of an issue. They, did they? they just
1: didn't think it was an no. issue. But you then go through. If you go through, there's a section in Duplessis' textbook, and there's a section on how to draft contracts, and he's quoting various Roman lawyers. One of them is a it was a lawyer called Gaius. And we know so little about Gaius, we don't even know if the Gaius in question might have been a woman. Uh, because there's a lot of attention in Gaius' writings to the status of women and you know, arguing in favour of it. You know, he's, he, in inverted commas, sounds quite feminist. And then you get to a section on the difference between contracts of purchase and contracts of hire. And he talks about it and his case study that he uses to teach young lawyers, you know, he was a barrister, or what Romans called an advocate, and uh, to train people in his chambers, uh, is gladiators. If you buy the gladiator, or you hire the gladiator, and the gladiator is killed, then you have to pay to the person who trained the gladiator, you have to pay under a contract of sale. If, however, the gladiator is not killed and is not harmed greatly and goes back to the trainer at the end of the games, then it's a contract of hire. And he goes through very carefully all the different either or or in the alternative, when you do legal drafting, the different clauses. And it's beautifully constructed. A modern law student can read Gaius' section on that and understand it and learn something productive about the difference between a contract of hire and a contract of sale. You know, where there's a condition a change in condition during the course of the of, of the hire. Mm. And you read it and it's just also a monument to cruelty. So you have this extraordinary civilization that just basically doesn't do compassion at yeah. all. And without me going into uh, I would like people who listen to Deling Pod to, to read my novels, yeah. but if you find the society in Kingdom of the Wicked, interesting because of the way Romans think, yeah. which I've put a lot of effort into researching and, and getting accurate in my in my characters. Um, if you want to read more scholarship on it, then you could do worse than start with some of what Tom Holland has written because it's very good.
0: Oh, we love Tom Holland. He's be, he's he's been on the podcast and we must must have him back. So, um, the other thing that really struck me about your Roman society, and I'm sure it's accurate. They're shagging an awful lot and they're much more liberated about sex than we
1: are. Yes, because they were, uh, uh, broadly speaking, you get cultures. I mean, every society does weird, pathologises sex in some way, shape or form. Um, The idea that there was some sort of mythical golden age where everybody, to use the Australianism, banged like a dunny door in a gale and no one cared um, is, is nonsense. That's not true. But you get broadly speaking a division into sex positive and sex negative, and the Romans were definitely in the sex positive category. They thought it was a good, healthy, normal expression of of life and you know, an affirmation of life, and it was also a fairly important part of their religion as well, which is why in places, I actually had to tone it down because you really do find dinner sets that are where the plates are and cups and salt and pepper shakers and so on and so forth are all based on different bits of the male and female anatomy you really did get pretty little wind chimes up out, outside people's that show naked women um, riding on flying penises. You know, the, these things were real. You, you got mosaics and beautiful artwork in people's houses in entirely respectable sort of upper-middle-class and upper-class homes where you'd have on one wall absolutely gorgeous garden scenes, you know, or somebody's folly or, or one of those lovely manicured gardens that's done like a maze that were then made popular again in the Renaissance. And then on the opposite wall, you would just have every position known to man or woman. And, <laughs> and and then you get on the third wall in the same room, often in a dining room, you'd have gladiators chopping each other up.
0: So this if, is the thing. So I'm say, say I'm an upper middle class Roman. Um, do I, and I'm married, do I get to shag whoever I want or do I...
1: There's a, if you're a man, yeah. you've got more freedom than your wife. Right. Um
0: Sounds, sounds legit, yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. So you're expected... Uh, you are, however, expected to be good at it because the Romans had unilateral no-fault divorce. Well, that's good because I, I can
0: practice on lots of you know, actresses and things. <laughs> things to like get, that. I'm doing it for you, darling, to get <laughs> better.
1: Just, yes, to get better. You were expected to be good at it and a man who wasn't good at it was considered a bit sad, really. Right. So being skillful was very important. Right. Uh, but you do have... Uh, a. a Certainly not in the society I have portrayed in this book, but the, the, the running joke was that, and Ulpian actually talks about this, he's one of, another one of the great Roman jurists, was that a significant number of um, upper middle class and upper class Romans bought attractive female slaves with the idea of making more of them.
0: But that seems sensible. And it right? was the
1: man of the house who was making more of them, but then you get the the ruthless Roman pragmatism because sometimes it would be clear because of the appearance of the children uh, that that they were the children of the master of the house, and so there were there are records of Roman trials litigation where one of those children is injured or killed or, or yeah, you know, the, 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 there's a negligence claim. Yes, they had them too. You know, they had that kind of the, those kind of uh, public liability type. Ideas the same way that we do, and you would get the master getting up in court and saying, "That one's actually mine. Yes, it's a slave, but it's actually mine. Can I have four times the damages, please?" And the Roman court's going, "No, you don't. Stop trying it on. Less value, slave. Doesn't matter that it's yours. Still a slave." So
0: it's not like it's not like in, say, medieval England. Where, or, or going probably to, at least up to the nineteenth century, where the aristocracy would have loads and loads of illegitimate children, and 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 they would, well, they'd be given. I mean, if 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 you were the son of a king, you'd be given Fitz, wouldn't you, Fitzroy, yes, Roy, yes. Uh, bastard son of, or or, or, son or, of, or you'd be given yeah. a title, and you'd be, you'd be you'd be looked after. So, if if I had if I had if I had children by my slave or slaves. Yeah. With the, I, I couldn't grant them oh yes, status. you could
1: oh you absolutely could I mean it just but the thing is because this is an entire society that just runs is motored by contract uh, you certainly could um, and uh, in terms of formal relationships the Romans were monogamous in the sense that you could only have one wife and you could only have one husband um, they and they, they frowned on bigamy and they also frowned on things that that have cause problems now. They frowned on cousin marriage. Uh, that's why when you read the Roman writers and the, uh, the historians, and some emperor passes a law so that a pair of cousins can marry, or an uh, 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 uncle and niece, or a aunt and nephew, or that, you, and there's, it's always people in the imperial household doing this. You know, it's never sort of, even the senate they don't try that on because there was a huge taboo against line line breeding.
0: But that makes sense. And
1: it makes sense, yes. Okay. And it's it's actually a gift from from Rome to us, which is in, because it means that our societies, one of the reasons they have been able to produce uh, the modern liberal market order is because we're less tribal. And the reason we're less tribal is because we've had thousands of years of. Lots and lots and lots of people, the majority of people with the exception of a few people in the aristocracy producing Habsburg lips and and things like that, the great bulk of people have always married out, married out, married out. Um, Exogamy rather than endogamy. And that's a a great gift from the Romans to us. What did the Romans do for for us? us, Exogamy is a good one. (laughs) Exogamy. Okay. And did they... Where did they
0: draw the line? I mean, wh- wh- in terms of who, wh- what you could do sexually, and whom you could shag or
1: um, bestiality?
0: They didn't like that.
1: Uh, it was people did it. Yeah, because it's all through the mythology, right? Some of which is Greek, but some of which is Roman. Oh, like but swans,
0: it, you can you can have yeah, sex with the swan. Yeah, uh,
1: but it was considered a, a bit off. They also had a special word that had two meanings with stuprum in latin and it could mean just a general term for sexual immorality and was kind of a floating noun verb and adjective the way australians use bastard it can just mean all sorts yeah, of different yeah, yeah. things yeah, in yeah. lots yeah. of different contexts it can be extremely rude and can start a fight but it can also just be funny yeah um, or endearing yeah so it had that meaning but it also had a specific meaning um which was I'm going to quote a Scottish friend of mine because I was forced to translate it in a tutorial with Professor de Plessy where he was trying to explain what a piece of Latin meant without turning everybody in a who are all these English lawyers who want to be Scots lawyers without embarrassing them enormously and he looked at me and said stuporum and I said well it's Two men and one woman. And a lady from Fife, who I still know, who also became who is still in practice in Scotland, became a solicitor up there, she said, oh, in her lovely Fife accent, which I can't rip off, a spit roast.
0: <laughs> what so, so that was encouraged or, or discouraged? Um,
1: it was ooh la. la. It was ooh, that oh, was, okay. that's very, very you see it in their artwork,
0: but right. the group
1: sex thing was widely liked. But it was considered very risque.
0: Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. And Where were they on what we would call pedophilia?
1: Um, that's a difference actually between the um, between the Romans and the the Greeks. Uh, they had. You see, in gay relationships, you do see the age gap. Right. With, uh, in gay male relationships, that you associate, uh, even in in modern society, there is often a, an older gay man and a younger so gay. So pederasty. Man. You, uh, yeah. But you take unlike in athens where you the, the boy was often about 12 or 13 yeah um, you see the with, the with the with the romans you you tend to see the the kid is, is sort of 16 or 17 is older getting getting towards modern ideas of age of consent and of course the concept of an age of consent is origin with a bright line this is the age beyond yeah. which you can consent, below that you can't consent, is actually a Roman development. It was a development of the Roman law. Okay, and what, what was that age? Um, it varied from time to time. Um, it went down to as low as 13 at various times, but also came up as high as 16 at right. various times, depending on the, on the historical period. Right. And it was always a bright line, and there was actually an enormous argument between two opposed groups of Roman lawyers. One of One group, which had the modern argument... Uh, which said that you you have a bright line that's the age and you because it's just ridiculous otherwise and you and and you finish up with a situation where um you have to look at the individual child rather than a simple rule that of general application but the other group like we would arguing other group of roman lawyers were saying well actually no you can work out who's an adult um has he got an Adam's apple has his voice broken. Have her periods a started? Like, a
0: bit like Bill Wyman and Mandy. You probably don't even remember that. Bill Wyman and Mandy Smith. Yes. Bill Wyman and the Rolling Stones. And Mandy Smith, I think, was was very young when he met her. But she she looked. I mean, I'm not not defending him. All mm-hmm. I'm just commenting that she looked much much older. And in yes. the same way, some girls are you know, 13 going on 40, and some girls are very much little yeah, girls.
1: It's the, it's the classic difference. You get one that's a paddle pop stick, and you get one that's. Um, and you get one that looks like Cindy Crawford, that can't yeah. kind
0: of Yes, exactly.
1: But you, you get exactly... The, and the, uh, they're often remarkably detailed, these debates between Roman lawyers. And you eventually get people saying, no, we cannot have a situation where you get the teenage son and make him drop his toga, or you get the teenage daughter and start going through her underwear. You, you just cannot have this. This is ridiculous. You need to... You need
0: a... a you a need regular. a rule. Yeah. You
1: need a rule. And that is... That that was a gift. Uh, uh, that legal argument between two opposed groups of Roman lawyers before legislation was enacted actually went on for about 50 years.
0: I wanted to ask you because uh, about the parallels between the end of the Roman Empire and our own era, because I, I, I rather feel that we're living in, in decadent times. And that, that phenomenon that we talk, talked about, whereby... The SJWs seem to take over Oxford very rapidly. I mean, the analogy I use is like the zombies in World War Z. They move really swiftly and not like the ones in Walking Dead. Um, I really feel like... Well, you mentioned something in the car about how civilizations can collapse very, very quickly and knowledge can be lost very quickly. And you talked about what happened during the, the Dark Ages, in w- w- post-Roman Britain. Yes. How we lost so many of the technologies.
1: It's... As a general rule, I mean, I, I, obviously I've taken a sort of academic interest in this that I've then turned into fiction in Kingdom of the Wicked. And I, people can read my story because ultimately I'm a novelist and I want to tell a story and then then they can read the essay in the back of book one and other stuff I've written about it for um, for Kiet and for *Area* magazine and for the Cato Institute and take it for what it is, but the broad rule is that as a general principle, things don't change very much, not in an observable way. And for a very contemporary case, um, the arguments being made about no-deal Brexit are just insanely silly. Now, that does not mean no-deal Brexit is going to be a bed of roses if it, if it happens, that's silly as well but the idea that it is going to turn britain into venezuela is bonkers no corbyn and
0: will do that not <laughs> not, not not brexit and, but
1: it will take him time that's yeah. the thing it's the boiling a frog thing that is generally
0: very good point you, yes. if you look at the history of corbyn's venezuela sorry not Corbin corbyn's <laughs> venezuela um what's he called not maduro uh, um uh, chavez chavez you, you see that at the start it was things were quite
1: it seemed fine. It seemed fine. I mean, it, my father used to say before he, before he died, he used to say, "It's, it is always remember that you can do something that's really, really difficult for a short time. And that kind of redistributive socialism can be done and also redistributive fascism like you saw in Mussolini's Italy where the whole, all the jokes about making the trains run on time. It's you can do something really difficult for a short time. It's when you keep doing trying to do it. Over years and years and years, that's when the wheels fall off.
0: Well, when you've got to pay for it.
1: <laughs> and yes, well, it's that. It, uh, it is still. I know it's a cliche, but it is still my favourite quote. Is the the problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money. Yes. <laughs> and I still think that is the best way of describing it. So a good guiding principle is that, as a general rule, things don't change that much. However, certainly there were aspects of the collapse of the Roman Empire where it was one of those world-defining changes. And some of the best scholarship that has been done is actually about what happened in Roman Britain after the withdrawal of the legions. Oh, what did this, happen? This country lost kilns, the potter's wheel, the spinning wheel, uh the size of cattle shrunk by between a quarter and a half the average size you can tell this because they couldn't could,
0: selectively breed anymore because they
1: couldn't selectively breed anymore basically what happens is modern market-based societies uh, that produce a high level of sophistication and material prosperity and comfort depend very heavily on the division of labor and division of labor is wonderful thank you adam smith that's a it's a great thing, but it requires specialisation, which means the whole jack of all trades. You know, someone who might be educated and literate, but also able to fix their car, or fix a washing machine, or do technical help, put refit a window. You know, do you, could you refit your sash windows? You yeah, know, that kind of thing.
0: Obviously, I could. I don't, how dare you insult me, <laughs> Helen, by suggesting I couldn't? couldn't.
1: But yet, yeah, that kind of thing is that when you when you get the underpinning market prosperity that you and social order that you need to maintain a highly specialised society pulled out from underneath it, uh, which is what the research about Roman Britain, post-Roman Britain indicates, is that the wheels just fall off. There is this incredibly rapid loss of sophistication and, and technical knowledge. And, and it and takes a – in Britain's case, we actually regressed here back before – to, to a level of civilization below that what had existed in Iron Age Celtic Britain before the Romans got here, the really regression was bad? so bad.
0: Oh my God! Yes, so, so you it does what... it
1: can happen that kind of thing, but it, it, you need to realise that it is quite rare, and people catastrophizing about whether it's um, No Deal Brexit or whether it's um, the the Yellow Vests in France. Or, or or whatever it could be any any side of politics or Orbán winning in Hungary or anything like that, um, from either the left or the right. They need to understand it's much more likely to be like boiling a frog than it is going to be to some sort of rapid civilizational collapse.
0: Do, do you not see parallels between late Rome and our own
1: civilization? No, I don't. Oh. Uh, and the reason I don't is because the society that was very successful and. Capable and orderly and peaceful and and produced all the sort of sort of long periods of peace. Uh, It was a pagan society with very different values from ours, which is what I I wrote about in what I've written about in Kingdom of the Wicked. The society where the wheels fell off um, was one that was actually morally much more like ours. It had become Christian. Um, It had taken on significant Christian ideas and values. It had warped them in many respects because you've got to remember Christianity was laid over the top of, of a very distinctive civilization that did some really quite weird things to Christianity. You've only got to look at uh, what Roman Christianity became in, in in the sort of the early days of the Christian Church and, and the religion from which it was ultimately derived, Judaism, to see really quite extraordinary differences. You know, like. Judaism has no concept of original sin, for example. This is an enormous difference, mm. and has incredible theological and sociocultural consequences down the line. Um, Judaism has a completely different conception of the afterlife, and there are also a very large number of Jewish traditions, and including the ones I had to write about in Kingdom yeah, of the Wicked, that don't have an afterlife. You know, you still have to be a Jew, and you're still meant to follow the 613 rules of, of you know, the Mitzvot. Um, and uh, but you, it's just the idea that you're that it's salvific mm-hmm. is is just salvific. A, let that word. Yeah, is it is completely ridiculous. And if you'd have gone to people on the Sanhedrin, if you hypothetically spoke Hebrew or Aramaic and had asked people, and these were religious scholars. I mean, Judaism has this tradition over over many thousands of years of people thinking deeply and critically about their religion and then committing it to paper, and this was going on in the time of Jesus. The people that Jesus was debating with, and my my Yeshua Ben Yusuf character uh, that he's debating with on the Sanhedrin, these people were not dummies. They had thought their religion through, and they gave a crap about getting it right. And it's kind of unfortunate the way they're portrayed in, in the Gospels. It doesn't really give Judaism a fair run. Um, and so you can see Christianity laid over the top of pagan Roman paganism became quite weird in, in lots of ways. And uh, the, some of the, the the cultural transfers are very odd, like the patron deities in all those little Italian hill towns, they all turned into the patron saints. And, I mean, I remember when I was working in Italy at one point, there was this extraordinary thing that there were these two little villages quite close to each other in Umbria. And the only difference in their two patron saints stories was that one of them, he was sawed in half across the middle, and the other one, he was sawed in half from the top of his head down to, down to his... Bits, right. you know that kind of thing. So, so you get very weird cultural crossovers, and it's, it can be worth going to deeply Catholic countries and looking at their churches. Like looking at Portuguese Christianity, and and you just look at it, and you go, my goodness, this is so foreign. This is so not like an English cathedral. Um, and it is that Christianity laid over the top of the pagan Roman bedrock, and then the two interpenetrating each other and becoming something really quite odd. So no, I don't see a parallel. And, and I and I used to um, actually I discussed this with Paul de Plessis, my Roman law tutor, a few times, and uh, he, he he and I used to call it a bad classics alert, which is where you have to be quite careful about drawing analogies between modernity. And a pagan civilization, and modernity, secular modernity, and a society that had become Christian but not at all secular. So
0: yeah, but I, I, I and that is, are you suggesting that that actually the Roman Empire that didn't that, that fell wasn't really Roman anymore? It had and become that, something very odd. Okay, and and uh, but but that doesn't mean to say that there aren't parallels between that period and now.
1: I would struggle to find them about. The one that does periodically come to mind, and this is once again drawing on Nietzsche, genealogy of morals again, is that, and this is me going right out on a limb here, there are parallels between a lot of women who were in, got involved in early Christianity because they didn't like being leched at and looked So at me in that too way. was
0: the downfall of the Roman Empire.
1: <laughs> they didn't like being looked at or thought of in that way by Roman men. But this was a very inst- and remember this is a society that had slavery and was terribly, terribly unequal um, in ways that we struggle to grasp. You'd have to go to you'd have to go to like a you'd need to go back in time about fifty years into probably a South American country to see something similar. In, in modern terms, terrible, terrible class-based inequality. Well, okay,
0: what about, what about, am I not right in thinking that the welfare burden was one of the things that destroyed the Roman Empire? That that previously they, they would have had a much more lax sense of obligation towards the...
1: Well, no, the pagan Romans had very intense obligation ideas, but they were not, it was not something that was considered appropriate for the state to do. Uh, and you'll see this well, that's good. When, yeah, when you read... Whereas later,
0: later on, though, yes, in the in the in the dog days of the empire, surely th- there was that kind of uh, possibly as a result of Christianity. Yes,
1: yes, and look, pagans wrote about this. You're always giving away other people's money. So, um, so, so you actually you do get arguments like that. So
0: Christianity killed the Roman Empire.
1: Well, that was Gib- well, that was one of Gibbon's arguments, and that's not something that I tend to buy because I just see these kind of things as big cultural movements that take time over. And, and you've talked to Tom Holland, he will say... Are they going to happen anyway? I No, I'm not a Marxist. That's one of the reasons why I write speculative studies. So you fiction. don't, you don't a, think
0: empires do naturally rise and fall? Because I do. But
1: I do think empires naturally rise and fall. But you've got to be very careful when you look at large, complex, urbanised facts that existed for hundreds or even thousands of years, and then the wheels fall off. The danger is because that's what happened, that that's what was always going to happen. And you've got to be really, really careful with that kind of thinking because that's the kind of materialist view of history that, that a lot of Marxists have. And it's why you, the, the people who are very critical of scholarly speculative fiction or alternative history as opposed I mean I've written novels I've done the best I can but they're novels I'm a novelist I want people to read my stories and to see whether they can relate to my characters and that kind of thing but you get a historian like um Niall Ferguson who has actually done scholarly work in this area and when he first started doing it the people he was arguing with were Marxists because Marxists have this conception of history that you're always going to go where you went Right. Every that it, 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 The material, the facts of history determines you've got the... It couldn't have happened in any other way. Right. Now, they're wrong. Yeah. We know that now, but they weren't unfortunately proven wrong by people like Null Ferguson. They were proven wrong by physicists who came up with the alternative timelines. And so we now know that they were wrong. But initially, those scholarly arguments amongst historians were all between historians in a liberal or Whig or conservative tradition and historians operating out of a marxist tradition
0: do you know what's really sad what's really sad is that we could go on doing this podcast for hours but i've got to eat that that curry that we've got in the lunch otherwise i'm going to flip and and actually we what, what this means is we can do another podcast another day yes i mean you know not not next week but but you can come back because you're great
1: and once you've read book two
0: exactly so we can talk about Kingdom of the Wicked even more and uh, yeah we we can talk about learned things so thank you very much to my podcast guest Helen Dale
1: thank you very much author of
0: Kingdom of the Wicked thank you very uh, much yeah bye bye